Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is episode 23. live in a world where over half of us are surrounded at most times by pavement, billboards, and strangers. A world that, when it isn't overly threatening, is toxic and boring. It is a world where imagination is valued to the degree that it can be commodified, and where our primary social ritual is the mutation of time into dollars, dollars into products, and products into garbage. Against such a dreary background lies the image that a tiny number of us hold either as a beautiful dream or a painful delusion, the brilliant world of anarchy. So thanks for joining us this week on the Brilliant Podcast. Um, the date of recording for this, since we're a bit behind in the editing process, is February 12th. And we're going to talk a bit about listener feedback. We may or may not hit some news, depending on how much time we have. And then... The focus for this week is going to be on the libertarian right, so the far right that styles itself as anti-authoritarian, and this is part of um, my last uh, regular stint on this podcast, and so there are a few podcast topics that we really wanted to get into. This is one of them. Yeah, I mean, basically we'll begin with some listener feedback. There's quite a few sort of semi-snarky... Um, <laughs> Uh, complaints of things that I've said. Um, I think the one that's the most interesting... Um, well, 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 we'll mention a few of them, so I'll, I'll just read a, a quote here. If Black Seed is the child of desert, as Aragorn states, then it's not clear why. Since the author of Desert writes, quote, As anarchists, we are not the seed of the future society in the shell of the old, but merely one of many elements from which the future is forming. End quote. A seed... Whether black or green does not seem to be the proper metaphor the author wants us to use. And feedback. Uh, th this is a strange comment, mostly because it's somehow taking uh, something that I said a little bit out of context, but mostly out of context because I was speaking uh, figuratively, and it's sort of speaking literally as if the term black seed came from the... Uh, the zine, or the sorry, the booklet uh, desert, and that I that I was intending to imply that we adhere to metaphorical consistency between yeah, it's the whole thing is sort of is a, a bit specious. But I will say, um, during the time when we were thinking about the name Black Seed, we definitely were arguing between three different uh, titles, um, and the title that probably I liked a little bit better than Desert, or sorry, than than Black Seed was Blackout. Really? Uh, the problem was um, that Blackout was had sort of been claimed that there were two announcements that there were going, going to be these new big uh, anti-civilization papers coming out around the same time that we were strategizing for Black Seed, and um, uh, one was called like Green Anarchies or something. It had a <laughs> very strange sort of name. Multiplicity there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. And the and the other was Blackout, and. Um, uh, I don't think I knew the people who were doing anarchy. The the other, e it was like eco anarchies or something. It was sort sort of a little strange sounding. Um, so obviously that name held no appeal. But the 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 problem is that the name Blackout had been taken by this other group who I wasn't exactly socially connected to, but other members of the editorial staff were, and they kind of said that we could take the name if we wanted because probably that project was never going to get off the ground, and it hasn't since. But um, you know, it, it is always one of these hard things where, like, two different projects were announced, their names were announced, and then Black Seed was not connected to either of them. So even though probably we could have uh, run with the name Blackout, especially since nothing ever happened of it, um, we ended up as Black Seed as sort of the decent compromise. Mm -hmm. um, and what was the motivation behind that name? I mean, Black Seed? Yeah. I mean, 
you know, when you're thinking about the names of projects, it's it's always a very different process than all, almost anything else you do with a project. And so literally we brainstormed and it came out of a brainstorm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so you can sort of take it to mean the, all the variety of things in which it has meant. And definitely we've, um, you know, Black Seed has tortured the, the metaphor as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess. And, and, and clearly in the context of desert, they want wanted to torture the metaphor in a different direction. And that makes sense. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So the next comment we want to touch on is uh, it was left on the Brilliant website by someone stylizing themselves as Headless Spear. And it was on the episode Indigeneity 2, which was one we did quite a while ago. And so I'm not actually exactly sure what they're referencing here, and maybe you are. And again, it uh, seems to be pointed at Aragorn. So the quote is, I have a little bit of an issue with all indigenous social practices being lumped together in my area. The pre-salmon drying and pre-colonial lifestyles were far more individualistic than the latter era, but I don't know. So it seems like kind of a lighthearted comment, and I'm assuming the salmon drying being a reference to stored surplus and how stored surplus changed social relations. I mean, I, I guess I would just say that that um, of course it's it's never appropriate to to pull together, you know, 500 nations of of native societies um, uh, using homogenizing language, and and while I do. Um, and and I feel like like as a principle, I I attempt to only lump five hundred together when I'm referring to what was done to them as an aggregate, um, because I I absolutely do not know enough about very many nations at all to 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 speak to their particular practices and and even their particular investment in individualism versus communalism or any of these types of questions. So I guess I apologize if it sounded like I was doing that, and um, uh. I basically don't love these types of conversations about sort of what what the truth of a particular people were prior to um, uh, colonization. Not because I don't believe the people talking, but because I don't believe the context in which they're talking in. And and so to me, these are these are definitely conversations I'd love to have face to face. I love to sort of do that that sort of work that cultural anthropology for lack of better language um but but i like to keep that conversational rather than sort of in the ethereal voice and uh so yeah that's all i have to say yeah and another one from uh this is an email and maybe something we can talk about a little longer yeah and this came from someone calling themselves enzo why does aragorn use the term politics to describe certain projects as opposed to philosophy or something else from my understanding, politics means something having to do with citizens and governments and revolutions and parties, etc. And I mean, oh, or sorry, and I mean to go to the root, it's about the polis and city states, etc. So getting at the etymology there. Given Aragorn's rejection of the revolution, I was kind of surprised about the use of the term politics. I thought I'd ask about it because I'm sure there's an interesting reason, even if it's because politics means caring about stuff now or something more complicated having to do with the larger self-described political project. So thanks, Enzo, and thanks uh, to the past two as well for commenting. Yeah, you know, again, um, on the one hand, I'm willing to say that I'm sloppy with terminology, I'm ha- I'm, and I'm happy to, to sort of accept that criticism. Um, on the other hand, I, I think that it, um, like... One of the reasons why I'm willing to say that I'm sloppy is because I despise etymological and semantic uh, arguments about terminology, <laughs> um, and and so uh, dictionary like uh, it's a strange dictionary that doesn't have a very big definition of politics. One de- one definition that you could argue would be sort of a a civil like an argumentation about civilization and how to manage civilization and and from that perspective i i think that the point that they're making is valid but i'm i mean i could loosely think of 10 other definitions um probably the one that i live with the most um because i live within the anarchist space because i've chosen radical politics and because my mother was a feminist is a definition that sounds something like 
the personal is the political. And so this definition of, of politics sort of says that what it is that you do in your daily life is politics. And so this then can be reconciled pretty easily with a sort of post-situationist uh, uh, desire to, recon to, to reconcile yourself to, to um, politics being thinking through and, and talking about the practices of daily life. I, um, uh, so I, I guess I'm not hostile to, to what this is sort of implying, which is, which is basically like that you people who are not, uh, um, you know, going, do, doing the, the politics of the people, i.e. the politics of the street should just marginalize yourself to be, uh, to be philosophers. Um, I think that there's something in there, but, but if I were going to extend that sort of hostility a little further, I would, I would basically say that um, perhaps it is true that people who, who perform politics are monsters and should be called that, and, uh, and, and the rest of us, quote-unquote, philosophers um, are basically people I want to get to know and, and are worth knowing. Yeah, um, because I am someone who likes to be precise and semantic and obnoxious. I have a bit of a different answer here, and I would say a lot of the reason I think a lot of anarchists do use the term politics, and that is something that I hear a lot in the Bay Area, which is the only anarchist group I've ever been around, I think it's because uh, a lot of people before they were anarchists were some someone who did care about politics, who thought about politics, who paid attention to politics on the national and state level, and so it's a kind of vestigial carryover word that um, just means someone's personal beliefs. And when I think of politics, I think of definitions that sound like you know, the art of representation or uh, who gets what in society and why and how do they go about getting it. And um, basically, uh, ideas that do endorse the existence of, of civilization and states. Um, I always like the one that politics is the second oldest profession followed closely or closely following the first. So a politician as prostitute. Um, and this was something that Ryder and I started to have disagreements about toward the end of my uh, stay on the show. I would say to him before and after we recorded things like, why, why do you keep saying politics? You know, aren't you an anti-political person? And at a certain point, he started spelling politics with an X as if that made it something different for some reason, which I never totally understood. But yeah, I, I actually don't mind the word philosophy at all because um, I think it's more precise and it. I think it... I know a lot of people don't like to use the word philosophy or use the word philosophy as a as a denunciation because they see it as having to do with the academy or having to do with being a passive person. But um, again, I guess etymologically, it, you're talking about a love of something, a desire for something, a search for something. And we, I think all anarchists are people who are... Um, who, who love to think critically, who love to imagine different possibilities, and so philosophy doesn't seem like an inappropriate word for that. Should we the, move up? Yeah, the, the final... Yeah, so the final one was something addressed to me. So Sean Swain, um, the anarchist currently incarcerated in Ohio's Supermax prison, um, in one of his d short audio dispatches that are called... Um, you are the resistance. He engaged with a piece that I wrote in Fifth State about the Chinese megacities. And um, he, from what he said, was struck by my comparison to a CAFO. A CAFO being an industrial agricultural practice called uh, standing, or an acronym for concentrated animal feeding operation. So basically where you... Um, imprison cattle at incredible densities such that they uh, they totally defoliate the ground that they're on, they have to be uh, f fed through animal feeds, they're given massive amounts of antibiotics and uh, anti-helminthics, and they tend to produce uh, these lakes of waste. Uh, there's so much animal feces in such a density that it can't decompose the way that it would normally be able to, and so you end up with these disgusting lakes that they let the shit run off into. And I think that's also a question of volume. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, density and volume. Um, and Sean had a, a line that I particularly liked that I wanted to read here, 
where he was imagining if the the giant Chinese megacity Zhangjinji, I believe that's how it's pronounced, uh, if it were to go through the way that it's proposed, which would, you know, an area the size of Kansas, uh, one city the size of Kansas with 130 million people in it, he wrote, imagining this, we now face the very probable reality where a generation of millions of humans will be born, live, and die without ever having ventured beyond the boundaries of a single city, without ever having seen with their own eyes a natural environment containing trees and dirt and wildlife. It's quite the grim, grim image, and uh, like I talked about in the piece I wrote, you know, we have these a lot of these sci-fi um, imaginings of arcologies, you know, giant cities that just become someone's whole environment so that they've never gone outside, they've maybe never seen the sky, and that sort of thing, and yeah, we'll see. Um, the megacities are already having serious problems before it's even being built about uh, how they're going to have access to water and that sort of thing, so it may never actually go through. And just a reminder to everyone that um, there was a recent call to send Sean Swing reading material, and um, having, having been close to people who were incarcerated for long periods of time, I know one of the big things is just feeling like there are people who are thinking about you, and so even if this person is a stranger and maybe you'll only know him through those audio dispatches, uh, you know, if you have the inclination and a little bit of time, go ahead and send him some reading material. The address is on a recent post on anarchistnews.org. There is a, a sort of uh, funny motivation behind, you know, I, I really like Sean because of how aggressive he's been in, in, in just talking to us and and sort of speaking from the inside to the outside. But um, in this case, the the conversation about him getting books, I guess that there's a deputy who's now assigned to reading all of the things that uh, Sean gets in the mail. And so part of the, the call to reading actually uh, sort of sort of made the point that um, at the very least what you'll do is you'll give this deputy a, deputy a bad day. Because <laughs> I guess he has to read everything uh, cover to cover. Even the whole books? I guess so. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit of news. Um, why don't we alternate between this and that? So why don't you begin? Sure, sure. So th this is actually a little news article from a year and a half ago, but I totally missed this one. Um, I guess I just wasn't paying attention. To it just news. came back up around, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, people were talking about it again. And it's just, uh, I guess, remarkable in how blunt and how, how flat it is and how it really ruins, I think, the idea of a progressive project or a progressive civilization project. So Google, uh, a couple years ago, hired two engineers who were Stanford PhDs, and Google wanted to be the innovator, you know, like they always want to be. And they wanted to find a way to make renewable energy um, cheaper, more efficient, and basically just say, you know, here it is, innovation out-competing the old uh, problematic ways that we lived. And so they wanted to put fossil fuel basically in the past by just making renewable energy more viable. And so that was what these people were assigned to do. They did. They weren't just looking into wind and hydroelectric and the, the ones that and solar and the ones we think of as typical renewable energies. They were also looking into experimental ones like geothermal and that sort of thing. And they came back after doing the research and said, it's impossible. Um, and Okay, <laughs> Eric wants to jump in, but I'm going to finish first here. And here's the, the sort of conclusion from them. At the start of the project, we had shared the attitude of many stalwart environmentalists. We felt that with steady improvements to today's renewable energy technologies, our society could stave off catastrophic climate change. We now know that to be a false hope. Renewable energy technologies simply won't work. We need a fundamentally different approach. So why, why I, I respond strongly to this is when you do a study like this, you know, there's the, the, the truth is in the details. And so in this particular case, the, I, I feel like the, the reading that, that you just gave of this was that um, we sort of couldn't replace the productivity of our current existing society uh, of our current existing infrastructure, while at the same time staving off climate change. Yeah. But the emphasis is very clear here. The only thing that, that this study cared about was catastrophic climate change. Okay, sure. And so they're basically saying that we can't 
we're going to have to deal with the consequences of, of, of catastrophic climate change, we probably could still keep... I My strong sense is, from what I know of these studies, which mostly include nuclear, by the way... Right, right. Is I mean, that, that's Lovelock's whole thing. Yeah, is that, is that we're going to still have to deal with climate change even even if we move off of petrochemicals right away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a different type of a point. No, yeah, and as you like to say, the it's always the framing that's crucial. So yeah. the framing here being, okay, it's a given that we're going to continue to have this productive society. It's a given that population is going to keep increasing. Um, they take as a given that we wouldn't be able to feed the world's population without intensification of agriculture. I mean, James Lovelock, um, I always think it's funny because he gets cited a lot by radicals as this guy who's saying climate change is going to be catastrophic. And I mean, some of his predictions are are really some of the most pessimistic. I mean, he's talking about millions of people dying. But he, what sometimes is not acknowledged is he also says uh, what we should be doing right now is preparing. We should be making fortress cities. We should be shifting over to nuclear power. Um, we should be adopting synthetic foods. We should be abandoning agriculture and instead having... He he jokes about how we could have all organic synthetic food. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not as if... Um, and I'm sure the, sa- the same is the case with these Stanford PhDs. It's not as if these people are saying, therefore, we need to stop having a productivist society. They're not saying that. Right. Yeah. Or productionist. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess for me, the what what all of this leads to is let me put it uh, in, in a different context if one were told 20 years ago 30 years ago that the tele- telecommunications uh, that the, the telephones would basically be over you know that we would stop using them um, that it, and that's that's pot's telephone right that um, uh, that the need for petro uh, that the need for the petro economy would shrink, which it has to some extent, especially with with regard to transportation. But of course, um, in in other words, there there are transformations that happen um, that, uh, like you can see a, a sort of master plan at work in making these transformations happen. And there's other transformations that are basically about pulling from from the best of the brainstorms that have happened in the past. So when I think about studies like this, a lot of what I think about is the fact that, that this is just increasing the tool belt of those who actually can and will move resources around when needed. Because you know what most of us are going to experience when substantial climate change starts to happen is the rising of water mm-hmm. at, at sea levels. And the amount of money that's implicated in the rising of waters at sea levels is insane. right? The idea that Los Angeles, Seattle... San Francisco could be wiped off the map in a generation or two. There is going to be huge transformations that happen from power, from the elite, to alleviate that those transformations. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's the sort of stuff that like we're not going to see. Like those those changes when they happen aren't going to be gradual. They're going to all of a sudden things are going to flip on a dime. But until the time of those transformations, all the thinking about it is going to happen in studies like this. So I, I actually think it's really important to read these things and uh, sort of keep up. Yeah, and um, it was probably a year and a half ago, uh, Ryder and I were talking about a similar topic on Free Radical Radio. Where, So on the one hand, you have the engineers and scientists saying, this is what conclusions we can draw from the data. And then on the other hand, you know, in the other sectors of power you have investment, right? And something that was, (laughs) you know, just incredible when you realize, like, wow, some people occupy totally different worlds from me. Um, There was this article I found in Forbes where various investors were being interviewed on, you know, what do you think of climate change? And what a lot of them were saying was, well, you know, I really think people think about it totally in negative terms, which they shouldn't be. These are huge investment opportunities. They were mm-hmm. talking about investment opportunities in building giant seawalls yeah. to hold back the rising tides and you know, how there's going to be this whole new section of disaster capitalism. That's, sure. Yeah. I mean, Dutch engineers now are in high demand. And I'm sure it's all over the world. <laughs> right? they, they they have a country that's yeah. you know seventy five percent below or twenty five percent below sea level, seventy five percent at sea level. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, 
Yeah, the the other sort of reference I was going to make was, and again, you know, it's it's just sort of like paying attention to the substrate of business news that actually are the people who are talking about this. But um, there's this uh, guy who's now now considered a venture capitalist. I think it, Andresine is his last name, I believe. I think it's Mark. Um, but uh, historically, he's known as being one of the like basically his PhD was was in creating the Netscape Navigator web browser. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was part of that that team, that the pre-Mozilla browser team that sort of created the first browser that everyone widely used. And um, somehow he's connected to, oh yeah, I guess Facebook has been providing some version of free internet to the Indian subcontinent, but the price of entry is that you're basically going onto the internet to go into Facebook. So it's called like Facebook Free Connect or something like this. And I, I might so it's a way to get more people to have Facebook accounts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so some of the details of this, I'm a little sketchy about. But, but what? So basically, India said, "No, thank you." Oh wow! And they, <laughs> and they basically made an anti-colonial argument when oh, they did it. Wow. And yeah, I totally missed this. That's yeah, really interesting. And uh, and the connected thing is that is that basically Mark, this sort of high-powered venture capitalist who is very responsible for a lot of this you know he's he's like one of the wizards at the at the tables making decisions he basically said um that he thinks it's it's fucked up for the indian people for 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 fake anti-colonial attitudes to 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 be ruling the day and and essentially making the argument that capitalism you're still using capitalism Uh uh-huh because you so you've adopted so many conventions and then suddenly you're just drawing the line arbitrarily here exactly okay okay well, moving on, uh, we're just going to make a couple announcements. One, and this is this document's been around for a little while, but it actually finally sort of got publicly talked about. Which is, um, you can get the document from the three to five website. The publisher is called Dark Matter, which sort of seems to be to be an, an imprint connected to three to five that publishes more sort of nihilistic material, and um, the. The, the title that we're talking about is called Anarchy, Civil or, or Subversive, a Collection of Texts Against Civil Anarchism. And uh, mostly I mention it because I, I did enjoy reading it myself. Um, it definitely collected a, a, a bunch of things from, from the UK that, that um, in, in one place. But um, uh, for me, the, the kind of adorable part about it is, is the, the way in which people from England... Um, the way that they frame things or phrase things is just so, it's just so different than it is in North America. And so, um, what we would call here in 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 North America red anarchists or probably big tent anarchists, they call in in this document civil anarchists, referring to them basically as being proponents of a civil society, right? Or trying and, to be good citizens, yeah, or, yeah. Be, or somehow, you know, connecting their anarchism to 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 what we talk about all the time, which is more good, you know, less bad. Ism. It be the morally appropriate person all the time yeah. until your ideas win through just by your excellent behavior. So that's a free download. Uh, check it out at uh, 325.nostate.net or is it .org? Anyways. And you, uh, so you said you enjoyed it? Uh, as a, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the document. It, it's, you know, it's a little, it it's a little heavy on um, sort of the Mediterranean mm-hmm. perspective, which, you know, is less like England than what happens in the US. I mean, um we, if you want if you want to we could talk about talk about it as a document another time. But okay, I just sure. just want to want to plug it. And I also want to plug this uh crossword puzzle book that Little Black Cart just put out called uh Workers 50 Sectarian Crossword Puzzles and um mostly it's just this epic book of crossword puzzles and it's it's insane in its depth and breadth. And so check that out from littleblackheart.com. And uh, we're going to move so on. So do you want to do the one last news story, and then we'll get to yeah. the main topic? Okay. Um, yeah, this was a, an article that just came out this week that I think is just striking as in terms of being in the Bay Area. And there was a poll done where it seems that um, a large number of homeless people were directly interviewed to see, you know, what's your story? How did this happen? And for those of you who don't live in the Bay or maybe just aren't familiar with the, the, the general beliefs about it, the, 
story that's usually given about the bay is the reason that there are so many homeless people. And I mean, if you really, if you spend any time going around the bay, especially in the downtown areas, it's everywhere. I mean, you see it constantly. Um, that the reason that there are so many homeless folks is that the that California has such good welfare and it's really easy to get food stamps. And so that's, um, there's basically a migration of homeless folks to come in the Bay because the climate is relatively mild and they know that they can get on welfare. And this study is basically saying that that's false um, to the degree that you believe in the study. And that 71% of homeless in San Francisco actually lived in San Francisco. And so that they were just priced out or pushed out or you know met with misfortune and could never recover and um which is just striking in itself and then (laughs) what the article goes on to talk about is that the city spends about a quarter billion with a b so 241 million in um social services yeah social services which are are it's public money going into private organizations and they cannot give any kind of account of where that money's going and there doesn't seem to be any uh, metric in place to measure whether it's effective. (laughs) Striking. So the main topic we're going to get into today, which uh, frankly I'm a little lost as to what I'll be able to contribute to this, um, is I want to frame it a little differently than you did in the the beginning part, but um, there are more and more anarchists who are coming to call themselves with by the term who rather than coming from you know union families <laughs> and and protest politics of you know of the planned parenthood to to anti-racist action to rather than coming from that sort of a background come from a background that is really different and we call it right or, or, you know, these people write anarchists, and, and obviously when we're referring to anarcho-capitalists, you know, we call them right anarchists. But but there's some sort of open question, at least to my mind, that somehow connects this question of left and right to a conversation that connects to post-left anarchism. I don't know very much about the right, by which I mean I don't know many people who come from this world. We, we've we been running into more and more of them over the years, and um, and so I guess that's sort of, to me, the open question that begins the, the rest of this conversation. Um, one of the people who we've been kind of arguing with a little bit on this blog comes from this place. And, and the reason why I don't like to say, to just call these people right-wing people, even though perhaps that's fair as a categorization um, is because you know most of my friends who are still part of the left when you say that someone's from the right you basically you're calling them a fascist mm-hmm. you're basically not giving them any um, yeah you're, you're declaring that they are that they are a thing that we are absolutely against and, and don't even um, feel like it's appropriate to negotiate with or understand at all and so so I want to I want to at least give that much room yeah, I think that's good. That wasn't how I was going to frame it, but um, now that you say that, I think I should do some some pre-framing framing. <laughs> so well, pre- and then I'm going to have to frame your <laughs> ridiculous... <laughs> go on, go on. So pre-framing framing is to say why I... W- so we're talking about this because I wanted to talk about it, and the reason I wanted to talk about it was that uh, I spend a lot of time these days in the print shop making books, and I basically want to constantly fill my head with noise so that I can escape from my own thoughts, which means listening to podcasts all the time. And so I've started listening to some of the uh, anarcho-capitalist podcasts, and what really surprised me was how they have extremely high viewing numbers, or at least from my perspective, extremely high viewing numbers. And I have heard 
anarchists say that there are more anarcho-capitalists in the United States than any other tendency of anarchism. And I don't know where they're getting that from, if it's just from personal experience of having met people. I've actually found when I talk to anarchists that they have wildly different guesses of how many anarchists there are in the United States. So to, to say that, you know, we've done this census and we know there are more of this or that tendency is actually kind of crazy to me. If anyone does have a figure on, on how many there are or like how you would even it's go impossible. about it. It's impossible. Yeah. yeah so. Actually, just a sidebar for a second. I think three years ago, maybe four, at the uh, San Francisco Book Fair, there was a type of, um, not poll, but questionnaire given out to everyone who came to the book fair that sort of asked these sort of demographic type questions and including political orientation but it was definitely done by like sociology grad student type people <laughs> and um and i'm not sure that they ever released any results oh really it. yeah maybe because I, i'm guessing it's because they found it unsatisfying somehow or something it could be yeah. it could be like a lot of hostility yeah um but but i, I think it's worth mentioning that anyone who sort of says authoritatively anything along these lines is just blowing smoke up your ass. They have no idea. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like Eric Orman was saying, the often right is used synonymously with authoritarian of some kind. So if you're left, you're anti-authoritarian to a greater or lesser extent. Maybe you don't go far enough, and that's why there's post-left. And then right, you're, you're authoritarian, you're pro militarism, you're pro-racism, you're pro-hierarchy. Um, and I want to be fair and, and be in good faith and recognize that there is a whole subset of people or multiple subsets of people that consider themselves anti-authoritarian and yet coming from the right. And so just to give a little roadmap of how I want to talk about this and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we deviate from it quite a bit. I want to first talk about what are the left and the right, um, and then give a little breakdown of different kinds of right libertarianism. Then we'll engage with an excerpt from a famous essay by Murray Rothbard, who is considered a major influence to a lot of people of these tendencies. And then I want to talk about problems we see or disagreements we have with right libertarianism and, and why we reject the right. So... Um, I think I've mentioned before on this that when I first started getting interested in radicalism, I couldn't figure out if I was a radical left or a radical right person. And so I, I spent a little bit of time trying to understand what those two different tendencies mean. And my kind of synthesis from it is that they differ on f in four main ways. That the left focuses on and values society or culture or people in aggregate, and the right tends to focus on the individual and considers any way of, of evading that and not basing ethics, basing value on the individual to be some kind of evasion or even some kind of creeping authoritarianism. Um, the left valorizes egalitarianism, whereas the right valorizes inegalitarianism. And I want to distinguish inegalitarianism from authoritarianism, even though you could say there's crossover, or you could say one bleeds into the other, or whatever. So the left wants to say that equality among people is either natural, like people actually are equal, it's preferable, we ought to treat them as equal, or it's inevitable in the sense that if you want to have a functioning society, you have to treat people equally regardless of what you think. And the right wants to say people are different, that they have fundamental differences, and maybe they're better or worse, or maybe they're just different, or it's desirable that we treat people differently because it's there, there are going to be people that are innovators or leaders that rise to the top and so forth, and society has to be set up in a way that recognizes that in order to get the best from everyone. Third, the left tends to consider people as products of cultural forces, so you are who you are because of things that are bigger than you, that act on you and shape you. And the right wants to consider people mostly products of their individual constitution, that the individual rises above whatever cultural forces impact them, and that you are who you are more just because of the fundamental shit that you're made of. And finally, the left has a tendency to valorize the future, to valorize progression, to say things are getting better, 
and the right has a tendency to valorize the past and see us in some sort of decadence. Hmm. I mean, lots of exceptions to both of those, but lots that, of that's interesting. Yeah. I would say those are tendencies, mm-hmm. yeah, and they're not absolutes. Do you have any? No, I mean, it, it, it's a worthwhile basis to begin the conversation, but I'm, you know... Too many definitions. <laughs> a lot of definitions, and, and also, I mean, sort of, you know, I, I, I immediately want to go to where we, what we would synthesize out of this. So. Okay, all right. Um, so, I mean, the reason I would reject both to begin with is to say both of them are, are based on abstractions. Um, they're based on Geist. On the left, you have the, this uh, reification of society or people in aggregate. And on the right, or, you know, you have the people, as the left likes to say. And on the right, you have this kind of um, reification of the, the rugged atomic individual who you know, conquers against all odds and uh, is who they are because of some sort of uh, great will. For those of you who are less uh, uh, attracted to the jargon that's being used, Geist is, a, it, it's obviously not a hipster term. It's sort of the opposite of hipster. It's sort of like a nerdy fan of the 19th century's way of saying bad. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> the accusation is fair. <laughs> Never been hip. Um, so I want to think, I, I actually reached out to some of the only right-wing people that, or I, actually, they, they would actually probably be pissed off at it. I just Post. said that. <laughs> people who were influenced at some point by the right that I you know, regularly talk to, who are the, the folks who do the Unterrified podcasts, um, and I was, I basically said, hey, I want to do this episode, uh, do you have, you know, here's what I want to talk about, do you have any feedback, and they gave some very useful feedback, um, and so there, there are basically three kinds of right libertarianism. One is based on natural rights, so the idea that there are moral rights, there are, you know, we are endowed with these sort of hard moral facts, and that comes from Murray Rothbard, and what their analysis is based on mostly is the non-aggression principle. Which we've all heard of. Yeah, so the non-aggression principle, the NAP, and I think this is kind of the stereotype of the libertarian, is that they're going to immediately go to this. And so I want to engage with it, and I want to recognize that this is something that's been talked about a lot in circles that I don't really exist in, and I know there are a lot of different definitions of it and applications of it and defenses of it. And so if, if you're someone who uh, cares about these things and thinks I'm speaking out of turn, please send us an email. But I did get a definition of it, and this came from uh, Univ- UNIVACC, which calls itself a platform for the promotion of free ideation and the advancement of ethically significant rational entities, which is pretty wild. <laughs> wild sentence. Some serious here. robot shit. Yeah. So aggression, according to them, is the initiation of a coercive relationship. Initiation, these are their words, should be understood in much the same terms as used in defensive complaints by children in schoolyards. Evidence that there is a strong instinctual understanding of the basic ethical position of the NAP. He started it. And so they say to coerce is the intentional or negligent use of some action, generally violent, threatening, or deceptive, to manipulate a person's condition or decisions contrary to that person's intent. Some draw the line at violence itself, which I assume they mean the physical. While the vast majority of adherents to the NAP at least include explicit and often implicit threats of violence in their definition, malicious dishonesty is a logically consistent and often included form of manipulation, and the combination of violent, threatening, and deceptive forms of coercion is sometimes referred to as, quote, force or fraud. I don't know who they're quoting. Many consider lethal violence to be the most extreme example of a coercive act, but still only the pinnacle of a tall mountain of possibilities, end quote. Very legalistic is my first interaction. Like, that sounds like something that would come out of a courtroom. I know, but the only difference between this and leftist stuff is is that this abandons rights. Or, Or it sort of implies rights by which we mean the individual's body, mm-hmm. but all the rest of it sort of, you know, like, like rights discourse tends to not be legalistic because it, it never, it only makes it to, you know, human rights courts. Right. Whereas right. this is very much like he did it. Yeah. 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 I think, um, <laughs> it's really funny to me that the, they base it on the child because I 
often make fun of people's arguments as saying like it it sounds like you're coming from the playground like yeah. he, he hit me I'm hitting him back like oh okay you have like a playground understanding of justice but they're actually saying no this shows us it's mm-hmm. deeply rooted in the human condition so well that's no different than deep structures talk that comes out of uh, anthropologically based sure. Sure. Uh, anarchist arguments sure um, yeah uh, can you talk about the what how this leads to anarcho capitalism yeah 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 so murray rothbard um uh very much argues an anarcho capitalist position and so the idea is He's like that, the founder of the position right yeah yeah and he was writing a lot in the 70s i think was most okay. of his work was done the essay we're going to engage with in a minute was written in 1971 and so the idea being that uh any imposition of force is wrong therefore all states have to be abandoned the state always being an imposition of force on the individual, whether it's in the form of the police, of courts, of uh, taxation, is something that taxation, in their yes, eyes, they're quite concerned about it. Is is an act of aggression? Sure. Yeah. Uh, regardless of the purposes that it's it's brought in, so the only thing you have left are uh, individuals, individuals making voluntary arrangements with each other. Um, their argument is that historically, when we see an absence of state presence what you have is individuals exercising their creative capacities doing things that they're good at that they like producing things and then exchanging them and that this is what humans want to do and if they're left alone that's what they will do and that that is the state of freedom mm-hmm. yeah and so um the capitalism bit um i don't know if rothbart actually used that word i think it got applied later he actually talks about how uh, he claims Marx coined the term, which I don't know if... Capitalism? Yeah. I mean, not... Or maybe much. maybe he popularized the term. He definitely popularized But, ba- but yeah. basically, Rothbard... But there was Ricardo and and Adams, and I mean, there were tons yeah. of people. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, he, he sort of eschews the term because he says, like, well, what we have right now is called capitalism, and I'm totally which against what that we, point, what I think, is fair. Yeah. It's a very he says fair I'm point. totally against what we have now. I mean... He's absolutely against what we might call corporatism. Sure. The idea that uh, you know businesses are getting these uh, various entitlements from the state, he's totally against. And yeah. so he seems to imagine this very um, individuated, uh, more or less non-hierarchical situation. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the rub is always in wh- when do property rights begin? Mm-hmm. You know. But okay, so that's that's, so that's uh, one type one. That's type one, natural rights. Uh, type two consequentialist libertarianism and so for those of you who are not on the nerd wagon consequentialism being the idea that uh, what is good and bad is exists in the consequences of the action not uh, the nature of the action not the intention of of the actor and so what is good is what brings about the best situation Hmm. broadly defined for people in general and so their argument is hey we're not going to mess around with these natural rights we're not going to make any of these weird moral claims about you know what is right or wrong we're just going to look at the results and so you have this kind of technocratic gaze and basically saying we should support economic and political liberty because it will in the long run all things being equal bring about the most happiness and prosperity in aggregate Um, I have seen this motivated to uh, argue for inegalitarianism saying mm-hmm. that uh, sure if you have a free market some people are going to do better than others but ultimately you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and even if we end up with uneven distribution of stuff because you know, we're still talking about commodities uh, the, the people on the bottom will still be better off than they otherwise would be if we had uh, this coercive state-imposed situation. I mean, the UN makes these types of arguments all the time when they basically talk about uh, some of the successes of the last 50 years being a rising GDP right. around, the, around the world. Totally, totally. It's a very similar yeah. type of argument. But actually, talk a little bit about him and what you know about him, because he, he almost tells me all I need to know about this position. Yeah, so Robert Nozick um, did not call himself this, but he's often used by people who have this tendency and that's because people in this tendency usually uh, not always but usually are not actually anarcho-capitalists they're minarchists Mm -hmm. so minimal archist and what they want is a really minimal state um, and they use Nozick's line which is quote uh, 
so a state, quote, limited to the narrow functions of protection against force, theft, fraud, enforcement of contracts, and so on, end quote. And so you just want courts, maybe some kind of police, but not like what we have now, that would enforce the decisions of the courts, and maybe you also want some kind of national defense. But you want what's called a night watchman state. So it doesn't, you know, it's it's only there when you want it to be, basically. Mm-hmm. It's only there when you call on it. It's only you there. Blow when, the whistle. Yeah. It's you know, we should just be making deals with each other, but maybe we need someone to you know, kind of be the mafia <laughs> and enforce the deals. And Nozick uh is well known for basically uh he he's coming from Locke uh, and he's saying anything that is a voluntary agreement between two people who can be demonstrated to be rational, mature, understand what they're doing. Anything that happens between those two people is is just, is good, even if you end up with massive inegalitarianism. Um, It's all about the moment, that special moment where two people make a deal, (laughs) come together. (laughs) And uh, Nozick was somewhat infamous because he, he actually said slavery is not wrong, if two people entered into it voluntarily. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people got upset with him about saying that. Well, I mean, I guess Nozak sort of represents the rhetorician of, of these positions. Because I feel like people who take a, a Nozakian type perspective just want to argue to fucking <laughs> to the end of earth with you. And, um, and it f- feels like almost all those arguments are to no end because they're about these sort of big principles. Right. Yeah. And there's a third tendency. I'm actually noticing we're getting short on time, and this one is, is just weird and obscure, so I, I'm just going to bypass it right now. And, um, you know, we're getting so short on time. We'll just des- describe it. We'll read some Rothbard, and then we'll we'll talk about it again another time. Okay. All right. That's fine. Because um, so the- I, I think the, our f- the feedback we're going to get should lead future conversations. Okay. And that's okay. part of the problem is with so much time between this coming out. And I know. Anyways. Okay. Um, so argumentation ethics are what's called the third position. And this, uh, you're just getting into, to me, I, so I never heard of it before. To me, my immediate reaction is you're playing word games. I haven't actually had that much time to process it. And what the argumentation ethics position advocating for libertarianism says is look, we're having a discussion about what the best ethical position is. Maybe you're arguing for statism, maybe you're arguing for something else. The mere fact that you're willing to enter into an argument about it, you're already participating in a libertarian mode of being because you're you're adhering to the non-aggression principle. You're saying we should make deals with each other, we should be um, arguing with each other, we should be using reason. We're, we're already doing libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And so for you to argue for something that isn't libertarianism, you're contradicting yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, Actually, Maoists do this type of argumentation all the time. They basically make the argument that if you... That, that a, you know, you claim that you want an anti-authoritarian world, the only way to accomplish that is with everybody agreeing and consenting to this mm. particular type of arrangement, the only way to enforce that sort of conversation, that, that possibility, is to make sure that proletarians can defend themselves. Hmm. And So you're already talking about communism. So you're already talking about basically Maoism. Hmm. And and so, th- so people like that, I mean, like, there's something interesting there in yeah. saying that yeah. agreeing to a conversation that we're going to adhere to in the future, that's that's sort of pleasant and perhaps it's, it's like a contract because I'm sure that these people have different attitudes about contracts but but I know that contract theory is very important to yeah, these people um, but you know it's it, it's it's a little bit of like a like it, it's a way of stating the case for your position and ignoring all other types of positions and that's, that's that is what it is well it's a way of saying you own the conversational mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And for uh, sure. I can go with you and say, well, yeah, sure, My, in my world, in my vision of anarchism, absolutely people do their best to get along with each other and respect each other. That doesn't necessarily take me down exactly where you're yeah. saying it goes. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll do the Rothbard... Um, yeah? Okay. So Rothbard uh, 
one of his big pieces was uh, Capitalism versus Statism, and he wrote it in uh, 1971. And I wanted to read two little passages from it. Um, he spends a bit of time talking about the triumphs of what he sees as the libertarian mode in European and American history. This is about halfway through the piece. Uh, we'll include a link to the whole piece. It's, it's available online. This revolution, he's talking about the, the uh, revolutions in Europe, the Enlightenment revolutions, was a movement on behalf of individual liberty, and all of its facets were essentially derivations from this fundamental axiom. In religion, the movement stressed separation of church and state, in other words, the end of theocratic tyranny and the advent of religious liberty. In foreign affairs, this was a revolution on behalf of international peace and the end to ceaseless wars on behalf of state conquest and glory to the ruling elite. Politically, it was a movement to divest the ruling class, which I was kind of surprised that they used that language, of its absolute power to reduce the scope of government altogether and to put whatever government remained under the checks of democratic, democratic choice and frequent elections. Economically, the movement stressed the freeing of man's productive energies from governmental shackles so that men could be allowed to work, invest, produce, and exchange where they wished. The famous cry to power was laissez-faire, let us be, let us work, produce, trade, move from one jurisdiction or country to another. Let us live and work and produce, unhampered by taxes, control, regulations, or monopoly privileges. Adam Smith and the classical economists were only the most economically specialized group of this broad, liberating movement. Yeah. Well, you want to blast through all the readings and... Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, this is where it gets really wonky for me. It was the partial success of this movement that freed the market economy and thereby gave rise to the Industrial Revolution, probably the most decisive and most liberating event of modern times. It was no accident that the Industrial Revolution in England emerged, not in guild-ridden and state-controlled London, but in the new industrial towns and areas that arose in the previously rural and therefore unregulated north of England. The Industrial Revolution could not come to France until the French Revolution freed the economy from the fetters of feudal landlordism and innumerable local restrictions on trade and production. The Industrial Revolution freed the masses of men from their abject poverty and hopelessness, a poverty aggravated by a growing population that could find no employment in the frozen economy of pre-industrial Europe. The Industrial Revolution, the achievement of free market capitalism, meant a steady and rapid improvement in the living conditions and the quality of life for the broad masses of people, for workers and consumers alike, wherever the impact of the market was felt. <laughs> yeah, the magic, magic market. Yeah, there's so much going on there. Um, I mean, even beyond the various points where I disagree with what they're saying mm -hmm. specifically, even if I take everything that they're saying is totally true, again, the... The devil is in the framing because yeah. if you want to, if you, if you want to make it a, a a choice between industrial capitalism and feudalism, totally. <laughs> how many defenders of feudalism yeah. have you met? I mean, unless they're uh, you know anachronists or something. And uh, you know, there, there's another book by uh, someone whose last name is Bernstein. I can't remember the first name. Um, where he does exactly the same thing and says, "Look at how much better." things got for everyone after uh, the Industrial Revolution because we moved out of feudalism. I mean, if you want to talk about people who, I mean, their water was so toxic that they had to put booze in it all the time or they were going to get, you know, uh, some kind of horrible infection. Well, sure, <laughs> you can put almost anything up against that and say, look at how much better it got. Um, the, last, the last quotation? Yeah, sure. So much later, uh, he's addressing the radicals of the 60s and 70s, the radicals of his time, and talking about how they're mistaken. He says, quote, In short, the radicals, feeling themselves forced into a visceral rejection of the world of liberalism, of Vietnam and the public school system, have adopted the liberals' own identification of their own system with reason, industry, and technology. Hence, the radicals raise the cry for the rejection of reason on behalf of emotions and vague mysticism, of rationality for in incohate and capricious spontaneity, of work and foresight for hedonism and dropping out, of technology and industry for the return to nature, quote-unquote, and the primitive tribe. In doing so, in adopting this pervasive nihilism, the radicals are offering us even less of a viable solution than their liberal enemies. 
There is then the third alternative, one that has still gone unheeded amid the great debate between liberals and radicals. That alternative is to return to the ideals. So you have that valorization of the past. Return to the ideals and to the structure that generated our industrial order and that is needed for that order's long-term survival. To return to the system that will bring us industry, technology, and rapidly advancing prosperity without war, militarism, or stifling governmental bureaucracy. That system is laissez-faire capitalism, what Adam Smith called, quote, the natural system of liberty, end quote, a system that rests on an ethic that encourages individual reason, purpose, and achievement. Well, obviously, we're going to have to talk about this more next week, because uh, just in responding to this, before uh, our listeners uh, give us more fuel, there's there's just so much to talk about here, especially the, the way in which just, yeah, the, all the framing. Like, yeah, the framing is, is really the big thing here. Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, so I guess what we'll do is take this up at the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so you're realizing that, um, you know, I, I don't want to spend a bunch of time in the next episode re-quoting all that, so we'll just reference it without re-quoting it. And then we'll move on to talking about um, the specific problems we have, and there, there are at least four or five big ones for me. Some are, I think, obvious from what we were saying, and then some are in the nuance. Awesome. Thank you for listening. This was episode 23 of the Brilliant Podcast, and we'll have more next week. Mm-hmm.